Well, brothers and sisters, we, we come to the sacred pages of the Word of God, to this passage in Matthew 4. And in this passage, we, we have a glimpse. We behold the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, commencing his public ministry. There is a sort of a jump here. There is other things that happen between the wilderness temptation and the, the beginning of, of the Lord's ministry recorded for us here in, in Matthew 4, chapter, tw- uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 12. But Matthew is not trying to write this account as a, a careful historian. He's careful about his records, but he's not trying to give a chronological detail of the ministry of our Lord. In fact, if you were to, were, were to harmonize this passage with other passages of the Gospels, with, with Mark, in particular with Luke and John, you would find that there is some uh, gaps here. The reason is not because Matthew was unaware or ignorant of these things, but the reason is because Matthew have a, had a, a clear, distinct purpose under the inspiration of the, of the Spirit in mind. He was not concerned so much about giving a, a historical, chronological, uh, detailed account of our Lord's life. Luke does a good job at that. Mark does certainly a, a, a very good job at that as well. Matthew is more concerned, and if you consider the original audience, he's more concerned about giving us uh, marker points. Marker points in the ministry of our Lord that showcase his kingship, that showcase to us these themes. He's more concerned, that's a better way of explaining it. Matthew is more concerned about showcasing to us themes, fulfillments. How many fulfillments have we seen now in just a few uh, verses, in just a few chapters of his uh, of his gospel narrative. How many themes have we seen crop up? It's, it starts with the genealogy. How Jesus, uh, how we are presented with the pedigree of our Lord Jesus. Uh, his genealogy he is the son of David. He is this Davidic king. The rightful, uh, he has a rightful uh, claim to the throne. We have seen other themes crop up in the narrative, in the birth narrative. Jesus being presented to us as a sort of a, a, a new, uh, better Moses. You remember that the, the, from a few weeks ago, don't you? The, the, the birth narrative and this, uh, this onslaught and this desire to kill the male children. The slaughtering of the innocents. We've also seen, uh, seen in chapter 3 in particular at the beginning how Jesus is presented as the coming king. As the one who, who is the kingdom of God who is at hand. As John proclaims him and heralds him. And last week I think most, uh, perhaps the most significant up until now we saw Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And yes, there, we saw that there were quite, uh, there is uh, right use of that passage in practical application on how to deal with sin. But we saw that, didn't we, that it's so much more than that. 
Matthew was, wasn't giving us a theology of how to deal with temptation. Matthew was presenting to us, and is presenting to us, uh, uh, Jesus as the new Adam, as the, as the Adam, as the one who, who was successive, successful where Adam failed. Adam was tempted in the garden to eat. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness to eat, and he did not fall, and he did not fail. We saw, didn't we? How Jesus was presented or is presented to us at the beginning of chapter 4 as the lion that overcomes Satan. As the Israel, the new Israel, the true Israel that did not sin in the wilderness. As the, 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 the people of God of the old covenant failed. And we saw how, what this meant. That he is a very fitting savior. That it is because of this. Having been tempted in every way as we are. That he's able to sympathize with us. Yet, well, with a clear or having been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. That's very important. He is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He did not grumble. He did not fall into idolatry. He did not stumble. That's what Matthew is concerned about in the Gospel of Matthew. He's concerned about showing the original, the, where it was the original audience that was made up mostly of, of literate Jews that knew their Old Testament. He was concerned about showing how Jesus was the fulfillment of all the hopes and expectations of the Old Testament. The original readers of, God, of the Gospel would have known about all of this. In particular, in relevant today, they would have known very well their, their, the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, which we have a, a quote here that is quoted in today's passage. And this quote would certainly, to any literate uh, Old Testament student, have enlivened their minds to consider the hopes and the expectations set forth in the prophecy of Isaiah. One, there we see a, 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 an expectation of a kingdom. We see an expectation of God coming and, and saving his people fully and ultimately and forever. There is an expectation of, of a coming savior, of one who would be a servant, of one who would be a, a, a servant of the Lord, a, a suffering servant even, one who would be a, a messenger proclaiming the good news of, of, the, of salvation, one who would be the Davidic ruler, the stem or the one who is a stem of Jesse. Imagine, if you will, in order for us to understand the significance of what we see in this passage, imagine, if you will, a grand puzzle, an amazing puzzle. Each piece represents something of a different role, a different promise that God had made, that God had promised to fulfill through the coming of the Savior, the servant, the messenger, the king. And it is a, a very difficult puzzle. 
Alas, it's an impossible puzzle to put together. You know, in order to put a puzzle together, you need a... Usually, especially the big ones, you need that, the box to see how those pieces fit together. And that is the Old Testament without the New. It was an impossible task for any student of, uh, of the Old Testament to fit all those pieces together. There was sometimes even conflicting things happening or seemingly conflicting promises there. But with the coming of Christ, with the New Testament, we see that actually those pieces all fit together perfectly. Every single piece completing the puzzle of, of God's redemption and salvation of mankind. A professor of mine used to say, and I uh, used to say in, in class, said in class once that, that the New Testament is a sort of an appendix to the Old Testament. You know what an appendix in, in technical books is, right? An appendix is that place where you turn to the back, and, and there you have the explanation of everything that is being said and done in the, in the, in the Old Testament, or in the Old Testament, in the, in, the, in the book. It's where you have the glossary. It's where you have the, the, all those technical, all those informations that help you to interpret what is there and may, and I know it's quite crude or it's not fully the, what the new testament is don't take this out of context but the new testament in many ways is that appendix to the old testament you cannot understand what's going on in the old testament you cannot make sense of this puzzle until you see the 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 cover of the box and in the gospel of matthew and in this passage in particular today, we see that beginning to unfold. And we will continue to see it through the Gospel of Matthew. And it is continually shown through the New Testament. You see, Matthew is concerned about kingdom. Matthew speaks of the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of God that is first and foremost in his, in his mind and in his in his. In his estimation. And it is the kingdom of God that is being preached by, by, um, by John the Baptist. It is the kingdom of God that here is preached by, by, by our Lord Jesus. Matthew has the kingdom of God first and foremost in it as a central theme. It is the central theme of Jesus' teaching. He says... That it is the kingdom or the, or the reign of God that is coming. Jesus went into Galilee. We read in Mark, for instance, proclaiming the good news of God. He says the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and, be and believe. It's not just Matthew, but in Matthew it takes particularly Great preeminence. And it's not coincidental, seeing that Matthew is perhaps the, of the, the, the four gospel writers, the one who is most concerned, concerned about fulfillment of prophecy. And that is why Isaiah is central here at the beginning of our Lord's ministry. Because Isaiah as well... Almost as uh, Matthew is the explanation of Isaiah. Isaiah as well is the prophecy of a coming kingdom. Of the restoration of a kingdom. 
And I'll, before we draw some practical application, and I, I, I debated long and hard, and even now as I came up to the pulpit, I was wondering how to present uh, this before we drew, draw some application. Let me break this down. Or what I want to do is to consider what is the kingdom expectation of Isaiah and to see how this fits with the message of Matthew, to see how Jesus is the one who brings the puzzle all together. Different pieces that seemingly wouldn't fit. If you ever tried to fit fit the two pieces of puzzle that were not meant to be together, you know it's like even if you can manage to get them somewhat, there's always like an overlap. It doesn't really work. You cannot cheat uh, uh, your way into completing a puzzle. And in, in, in Isaiah, there's, there's a few things there that seemingly are, are either contradictory in the same person or, if not that, should be different persons altogether. Isaiah speaks of the kingdom of God as having agents, and you perhaps heard uh, 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 about some of these uh, names. Uh, the kingdom of God has, uh, uh, in Isaiah has agents in the sense that there is, for instance, an expected Davidic ruler. There's someone who would be a, a Davidic king. But then towards the, the second part of Isaiah, the message, the agent seems not to be a Davidic ruler. It's more of a, a, a servant speaks of a servant in, uh, in Isaiah 52 and, or 53. It's particularly a suffering servant. How do you have a ruler and a, and, and a suffering servant? How do you have a... Can, can you see the, the, the incongruity of this thought? A ruler is not a servant. A ruler is the one who is served. And then towards the, the latter part, if you divide the book of, of Isaiah into three parts, there is a third agent presented to us there. It's no longer the Davidic ruler, although themes all uh, prop up there as well. It's no longer the, 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 the servant, but particularly the last nine chapters of uh, Isaiah, it's a messenger. One who proclaims, one who, 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 who speaks of God's salvation. It's wonderful. Some, one, most, some of the most wonderful parts of Isaiah are found there. So let me just quickly try and put a little bit more flesh into these three agents. So number one, we have this promise of a Davidic ruler. And I think we all know some of these passages as, that speak of a coming king, a, a son who is to be born. We just had uh, uh, the, the Christmas time and we always... Uh, emphasize and we always look at those passages but from Isaiah 1 to Isaiah 39 chapters those first 39 chapters they speak of the expectation of a king coming Isaiah 11 speaks of one who is a who is to be a ruler from the line of Jesse who will be filled with the spirit of wisdom understanding counsel who will be mighty and knowledgeable and who will be a God-fearer That is what the Messiah is going to be, the anointed one. 
one who will come and establish justice and righteousness. Because at the time of Isaiah, there was no justice and righteousness. There was sin. He, li- he was a, uh, a man of unclean lips, living in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And the expectation, the hope was that the God will at some point come and sort all of this mess out. Isaiah 9, 6, or Isaiah 9 as a whole, and from which this quote from the prophecy of Isaiah in Matthew 4 comes, is this idea of a, a coming child who will be wonderful, a counselor, a mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. He will bring peace to all the strife that we see around us, to all this oppression. Throughout Isaiah, we have this one agent, number one, a Davidic ruler. When God comes to sort everything out, it will be through an agent that will be a son of David, that will be a Davidic king. And it is in Jesus Christ that we find the yes and the amen to these prophecies. He is the one who is the son of David. We've already seen uh, how he is uh, of the right pedigree of the genealogy of David from Mary's side. And we've already seen how he was anointed in, at John the Baptist's baptism. Anointed, that's, that's language of a king. David was anointed years before he actually sat upon the throne. He was anointed by, by, by Samuel. And here Jesus, before he goes to his coronation, he's already anointed. He is the Davidic king. Yes, and there is a few things here that, that seem uh, already out of the ordinary. Because a king usually is in the capital city. And here we see a king in the wilderness. We see a king, instead of going to Jerusalem, he is going to this, this Gentilic uh, region to bring the good news of salvation. We are already starting to see some incongruities from expectation to the reality in our Lord Jesus. But he is that one. Jesus is the Davidic king. He is the one bringing justice and righteousness. And we'll see that throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It's not what the the Pharisees expected. He comes not to confront the the Roman uh, uh, oppressors and the, 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 the poor sinners in need of, of the Gospel. He comes to confront the, the oppressive religious elites. He comes to confront the, the systems of injustice that are present within the temple uh, system he comes not to to he comes first to bring light to the gentiles in galilee in capernaum but the second agent that we find in the book of isaiah number 1 davidic ruler the second one is a servant and servants in in the old testament were by by ex, par excellence the priests those were the ones who were called uh, First and foremost, the servants of God. And we, you can see here, there is a king, there is a priest as well. The servant in Isaiah, he's one who establishes, or is one who, who procures, sorry, the king establishes, but the, the, the servant is one that is presented in Isaiah as one who procures justice and peace. Many passages speak of this servant too many perhaps for us to have a look at. And we've considered some in chapter 3 already. One in chapter 3 already. But perhaps the one that is most 
shocking is Isaiah 52 and 53, or the end of 52 and the whole of 53. Is this suffering servant who procures atonement. How is peace to be procured? How is justice to be procured? The servant himself will make the sacrifice. He will bear the sins of his people. And that is shocking. And here we, we, we have to, if, if, without, if we could consider uh, looking at these passages and this without the, no, the knowledge that we have now of our Lord Jesus Christ, we would say, there are, those are two completely different people. Because a, a king doesn't serve. A king does not serve. But what do we see in our Lord Jesus Christ? If not a king who came not to, to be served, but to serve. A king who comes and, and merges these two agencies, these two agents that are presented to us as seemingly uh, opposite realities in the book of Isaiah, but in the Lord Jesus, they reconcile fully, they merge, and they merge perfectly, like a piece of a puzzle, that satisfying uh, sensation when you put the last piece in, or, or you put one piece that perfectly fits with all the others around it, you go, yes, that's it. He is the Davidic ruler, and he is the servant, the priest who brought sacrifice, the priest that mediated between God and man. He is the king, he is the priest. And number three, and much more could be said here, but number three is God's messenger. In Isaiah 56 to 66, those last ten chapters, uh, this, the kingdom has an agent, or God is, is bringing about this kingdom through an agent that is called the God's messenger. And, and, the, and now he's not establishing or procuring, he's proclaiming the reality of salvation. It is a wonderful thing to see. Let me just read to you a few verses. I, I know I, 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 I'm speaking a little bit... Um, without quoting those verses, but listen to Isaiah 61, that wonderful passage that later on Jesus quotes, or before here, it's quoted in, a, in another gospel, it's before this time, the Spirit of God, uh, is the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is the messenger in, in Isaiah 61. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach, to, to proclaim the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the, year, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the God garment of praise for the, uh, the spirit of heaviness and the, they may be called trees of righteousness the planting of the Lord that, that he may be glorified and again another angel and now does this fit with all those other two I'm sure there were many Old Testament students at that time that were considering perhaps there will be a vague, uh, an, uh, an ultimate prophet and there will be a, a messenger that's what a prophet is messenger an angel uh, of the Lord uh, there will be an ultimate priest and there will be an ultimate king but they are going to be three different people there is, there is no way that this is the same person but then you come to the New Testament and it's the same, lo and behold it's the same person and it all fits together and lo and behold Jesus is not only the messenger 
But he is also the message. He is the breaking in of the very reign of God. God. Jesus is the kingdom of God that is at hand. He fulfills all the expectations of, of Isaiah and all the Old Testament prophets, types and shadows perfectly. He is the embodiment of Isaiah 61, 1 to 3. He, and Jesus bears witness of this. He knows it. And you think, yeah, well, that's, that's great. But there's more. Because when you look at the book of Isaiah, you quickly realize a few things. Is that these agents, they are not just human agents. It is God himself. We're told time and time again that the king now and the king to come in Isaiah is God. The calling of Isaiah in Isaiah, Isaiah 6. Who is the one sitting on the throne? It's the Lord high and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy. He is, he is tended by angels from all sides. The train of his robe fills the temple. He's sitting in the throne. And being seated in the throne is, is the mark of judgment. Time and time again we are presented in the book of Isaiah. Know that the king is actually God. Time and time again, we are presented that the God is the one who is, who is coming to do the saving. In Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 55, that's particularly proeminent. It is God who comes to do the saving. And this is important because the people of God, reading this or the, or in the Old Testament, they were the ones being sent to Babylon, being sent into captivity. And God was saying to them, you're in this mess. You're in this situation. Don't look at those gods or those idols of the, of the Babylonians. They will not save you. I alone will save you. Outside of me there is no salvation. Don't, go into, uh, don't fall into idolatry. God says to them, I'm king now. Isaiah 6. Although he is still, there is a coming kingdom. There is this tension in Isaiah as well, isn't there? This, uh, the kingdom, the king is already now in heaven reigning, but yet he is still a king, there is still a kingdom to come. And God as the king is the only one who saves. And the message there for them, in a sense a message here for us as well, is that even when we lose all sight of God's reign, that does not mean that God is not reigning. Even when we lose all sight of, of, of God's uh, control, it is blind unbelief. It is not that God is not in control. God says to them, even if you lose sight of all this in, the, in, the, in Babylon, do not give up. Do not look at the gods of your captors. Do not give them uh, uh, honor or vassalage. And that is a wonderful message. God is presented to us in Isaiah as the warrior that will bring peace into the world. He's not just the God of, uh, uh, that, that will fight for Israel, uh, but he is also the compassionate king who will welcome all the Gentiles, the nations in. And again you say, how can this be? How can you fit all of this together? Look at Christ. A compassionate king who is also a warrior.
who is an international king. Not just the king of the Jews, of the ethnical nation, but he actually becomes the king of all the nations. So this is what, I, what Matthew is trying to tell us when he quotes from the Old Testament, when he quotes from Isaiah. He's trying to tell you know all those expectations that, you, that you've read in Isaiah all, through, all your life? Jesus is the fulfillment. The book of Isaiah presents God as the compassionate king will come to save, working through the agents of his Davidic king, of his uh, messenger, and of his, uh, of his servant. And the New Testament tells that is all to be seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does this mean to us? As we come to a passage like this, what do we, what do we make of this? Well, first of all, I think the message is quite clear. God is reigning. And God, uh, what we, let me put it in another way. We've considered the kingdom. We've considered the king. What about us as citizens of the kingdom? What is it that the Lord has to tell us on how we are to live as the people of the king? First of all, we need to realize that although God's kingdom is not fully established uh, presently uh, in, in complete fulfillment at, as it will be in the end of the age, God is king now. In many ways, in many ways just like he was in, in Isaiah's day at the beginning of his ministry, he was already king. He, there was a kingdom to come. And that's the prophecy as well. But the, he was already king. And God is already king in our daily life. And how does, should that I, uh, change? The, uh, not, how that changes our lives it should be amazing. Because all that we do, we should do it as citizens of a kingdom. Yes, if, if I were to ask you your mailing address, your mailing address will be somewhere in London, somewhere outside London. Some of you will be in Portugal. But your mailing address is somewhere in this world. But your citizenship, your kingdom, your, your, your nationality, your passport spiritually, is not in this world. It's not of this world. Your home is nowhere here. We have no permanent home in this world. We live in tension, yes. We have this tension that uh, at times it feels like God is not really reigning. At times we cannot see it, but it is our unbelief. It is our lack of faith that is unable to see it. It's not because He's not there in control. It, and we are citizens of heaven. And... Hebrews expresses this tension quite beautifully. You know that passage in Hebrews, it says, By one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And you go, Jesus by one sacrifice has made perfect, but we are still made, being made holy. Yes, to both of them. To both of them. And because of this, we should live in a different way. Since we, the, the kingdom is here, let me put it like this. Since we know that God is reigning now, we should be optimists. We don't grow, in, in, grow into despair. We don't fall into, into sorrow, into, into depression over the things that happen. God is king. 
And all things, as we saw this morning, all things God is working together for the good of those who love Him, of those who have been called according to His purpose. That should make us the most optimist people in the world. Inside of, even in spite of all the, the, the bitter providences that we have. And yet, it should also, because God, we know that it, He is King fully, but only in part visibly now, it should make us sober-minded as well. Optimists, but not triumphalists. We expect to see results. We pray for them, and we know God is in control, and we expect to see the results. But we know that in this side of glory, there will not be perfect results. The perfection is only to be attained in eternity. And that should impact the way that we serve. And when we speak of service, I'm not just saying going to church, praying. I'm not just saying uh, being a, a Sunday school teacher or, or, or cleaning up the, 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 the church. I, when I speak of service, I'm not just even speaking of, of being very, uh, living a holy life. And all that is good. But if the kingdom is here, and if we are to live as a part of the kingdom, we are to uh, interpret everything in our lives from not... We are to look at everything that happens in our lives as citizens of God's kingdom. Everything. And sometimes it's hard. But everything is, should be seen in light of our identity as God's subjects, as citizens of the kingdom, as sons and daughters of the king, actually. And that impacts everything that we do. How we interact with this world. With this sin-ridden world. There's an, let me give you an example. of. Uh, uh, there is a, a story told by Justin Martyr, the, the, church, uh, the early church father. He lived about 150 years after our Lord. He actually was born or raised not very far from, from Galilee of the Gentiles. That we, we spoke or that we are looking that is alluded to in this passage. He says in one of his uh, writings that uh, in his day, some of the, the plows that were built by Jesus and Joseph were still in use. Long before there, was, there were iron plows, they used to use wood plows. And he says that even in this day, 150 years after, they were still in use. They were still there. And that, what that tells you is an, what I want to, you to see is that that is an example of how to live in this world as citizens of the kingdom. We do our best work possible because we know that we are serving the king of kings, even as we serve our bosses, even as we, we, we serve our families, in our relationships. Because God reigns, we want to see his reign through our lives being displayed. That is the point of living as citizens of the kingdom. And the mark, perhaps, the greatest mark of a citizen of the kingdom, how do we live as citizens of the kingdom, is, is there contained in the message of our Lord Jesus. In that brief account of what was our Lord Jesus' message from the start, 
Verse 17, we read, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First of all, let me just say this. This is the message that Jesus preached. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the message that he preached. Nowadays, there is this growing sentiment within evangelicalism that this message is a message of fire and brimstone. That this message is not a good message, uh, not an appropriate message for our days, but yet it is the message that our Lord preached. Should we preach any other? Should we proclaim any other? And secondly, let me just say this as well. It is exactly the same message that John the Baptist preached. Jesus said that he was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. The message of the, Old Test- of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets is the message of the greatest preacher of the New Testament, of the greater, greatest preacher of all time. You see, there is also a growing sentiment in some uh, evangelical circles that, that the message of the Old Testament is somewhat different from the message of the New. It is not. It is exactly the same message. There is only just more light in the New that sheds light on how the gospel is the gospel, but it's exactly the same message. It is for those who trust. It is for those who believe. God is only a refuge for those who trust in Him. God is only the Savior of those who trust in Him. It's the same message. But it's a message of repentance. So let me finish by... Because I said... The last time we looked at uh, the message of John the Baptist, I said, well, I'll speak to more about repentance or a little bit more about repentance the next time we come to it. And I'll say say it again. The next time we come to repentance in this book, I'll say a little bit more. But what is repentance? What is this repentance that John the Baptist spoke of, that Jesus speaks of so clearly? Because we have many misconceptions about repentance, don't we? We think things about repentance that are not actually true. Our confession says that repentance, saving repentance, is a gospel grace in which those who are made aware by the Holy Spirit of the many evils of their sin, by faith in Christ, humble themselves for it with godly sorrow, hatred of it, and self-loathing. They pray for pardon and strength of grace and determine and endeavor by provisions from the Spirit to live before God in a well-pleasing way in everything. What, what he's saying here, repentance is not just feeling sorry. Repentance is not just feeling some kind of sorrow. Sometimes our children are like that, aren't they? They do something wrong. You confront them with it. They might as well say sorry. But you know, really, it's not really repentance sorry. It's just they're sorry for having been caught. They're sorry for, for, for something... For for the consequences of, of being caught. They're remorseful for, for, for being grounded. All our children do this. We do this. Being repentant it's just, is not just being sorry. Sometimes people think, oh, I'm repentant because I've, uh, they've made a big mistake and they ruined their whole lives because of that. That's not being repentant. You're sorry because you, you made a mistake and you ruined your life. But that's not repentance. Repentance is more than feeling sorry for the the trouble you caused to someone. 
you may cause a lot of trouble to, to someone and, and then feel sorry for it. That's not repentance. A repentant person who says, uh, oh, it was the circumstances. You, you know that? So often in marriage we do that. I do that to my wife. My wife does that to me. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, but you're not really sorry. You're immediately saying a but. It's like you're trying to justify with some kind of circumstances what you did. Usually it's my wife telling me that, but by the way. Um, don't put any buts on it. On that, on it. A repentant person, true repentance, involves a change, a turning, a realizing the grievousness of the problem, a realizing that the problem is not there, the problem was not in the circumstances, the problem was not in someone else. I am the problem. Repentance says, I am the problem. And I need to change. I need to turn. And I need to rely on the goodness of others to forgive. I need to rely on the goodness of God to forgive. That is what repentance is. A repentant person knows in spiritual terms, let me put it like this. A repentant person knows that he deserves help. Pastor Evandro was telling me this story yesterday. Was it yesterday? He was telling me the story of two ladies in his congregation. And he used this as an illustration of, uh, of something else, but let me use it here as an illustration of that. Two ladies in the congregation that he wasn't quite sure where they stood spiritually with Christ. And he approached one, and I'm, I'm going to butcher because I'm paraphrasing him, and he's, he's so much more articulate of a pastor telling stories than me. But he tells that he approached one lady, and he asked her, what is the gospel? But he asked her, are you going to heaven? Why? And the lady goes, well, because I'm a good person. Because of this. Because I, I this. Because me this. Because me that. And although Pastor Evandro was saying he was be, trying to be charitable with the lady, uh, because sometimes not everyone is able to articulate uh, the realities of the gospel that is still true in their hearts. What saves us is not our capacity to articulate the reality of it. It, it became quite clear. The lady hadn't really come to understand. Another lady that he came to ask her that. Why are you going to heaven? Are you going to heaven and why? And the lady just said, I don't know, I don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve it. From what Pastor Evander said, he said, that's good enough. I know, I know enough. That is repentance. It's re realizing that I am the problem. That I brought this upon me. And that I, that I need salvation. And that my only hope is to trust in the goodness, mercy of another. So my question to you is, what is your attitude towards your sin? I don't care if you're a believer, 
professed believer or not. This is, applies to all of us, believer or non-believer. What is your attitude towards your sin? Are you repentant of it? Do you hate yourself for it? Do you, do you load, as the, the confession says, yourself for the sins you commit? It doesn't mean that you become perfect once you've repented. There's this story told of a man who was a farmer, who was a very mean, uh, explosive man. He would burst against his uh, uh, workers, against his family, and against his wife, his children. He was just an explosive man. He was vile and corrupt. He was, he was just a person that every time he walked into the room, everyone would shudder because they knew they were on the brink of, a, of, a, of all hell breaking loose. And one day he got converted. A few days later in the farm, someone did a mistake and he burst out and he, 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 he lashed out at, this, at the worker. And you say, was he saved? Yeah. You know why? Because after that he came home. And he, he, he hung, in, he put himself on top of the table and he was crying. He loaded himself for what he had just done. His wife came into the room. His wife asked him, what, what is the matter with you? What, what, what is happening? What, why are you like that? Why are you in this situation? Why? And he said, because I haven't changed. I'm no different than I was. I thought, I thought I was saved, but I'm no different than I was before. And the wife says to him, Oh, my husband, but you are different. You are different. There's a world of a difference between your, your attitude now from your attitude then. You see, when you repent, it's not that we are made perfect. In fact, we, we are... We are more aware of our sin than ever before. But our attitudes changed. We loathe. Our hearts change. So have you repented? Have you come to the point where you no longer defend yourself because of your sin? It's someone else's fault. I am the way that I am because so and so did this to me. Had it not been for them, for them I wouldn't have done this. Is that your attitude or do you loathe it? That is what repentance is. Have you repented? If not, repent. For the, sin, for the kingdom of God is at hand.